More than ever, I am super selective on how I spend my time, whether it's choosing which emails to read or how I get my continuing ed units. I want value for my time and efforts. I'm Shar Beauchart, and I bet you can relate. So when I say I get my CEUs from SpeechTherapyPD.com, just know their speech-language videos and pod courses are practical and totally worth it. And right now, you have the exclusive opportunity to pay less for the subscription than I did. <laughs> okay? Memorize this discount code. It's SHAR, C-H-A-R. Just go to SpeechTherapyPD.com, subscribe, and at checkout, type in what? SHAR, C-H-A-R. You get a $10 discount for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Do it now. It doesn't take long. SpeechTherapyPD.com. You and your speech kids will be glad you did. It's time well spent. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Shar Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Hello, and welcome to the fourth podcast of The Perfect Oral Motor Storm. Today, we cover and critique Dr. Loft's five reasons to question using ENSOMs. Now, you'll see these in most of his past and present convention handouts, his online presentations, and in several journal articles. Even Dr. Forrest has listed and discussed these same five reasons. I therefore believe they're important and critical concerns and reasons to oppose oral motor. So for that reason, Dr. Loft's five reasons are combined into this, the fifth wave of the perfect oral motor storm. Now, each of Dr. Loft's reasons enumerates several items, and in some cases, if the list is short, I'll list them. If there are many, I'll summarize. Also, I took the liberty of alphabetizing his list of concerns in each of the five reasons for easy reference. I'll refer to like A and B and C. I include my analysis of his concerns, uh, critique the subject and sometimes his references, as well as present substantiated views of oral sensory motor theory and methods. Now, here are Dr. Loft's five reasons. One, part-whole training and transfer. Two, strengthening the articulatory structures. Three, relevancy of ENSOM to speech. Four, task specificity. Five, warm-up awareness metamouth. I also have to say, I'm hoping that you have access to the handouts. And you can access them at speechtherapypd.com. And after this is aired, you can come to my website, speechdynamics.com, and download the handouts as well. But if you go to speechtherapypd.com, you can get your CEUs as well as the handout. All righty. Are you ready? Woo, let's jump in. Here we go. I'm so glad you're here and that you're taking time to listen to this. It is really good to be familiar with these five theoretical reasons as to why not to do oral sensory motor therapy, to know why some support these views. And it's good to be knowledgeable of the research behind, or in some cases not behind, their views. So here we go with number one. The first theoretical reason is called part-whole training and transfer. Dr. Loft's supportive view of, quotes, whole training, whole speech sounds or whole words, in opposition to, quotes, part-to-whole training, which is training in relevant components, then combining them, does not hold up. There are obvious flaws to his belief. Some of his resources are either not on topic or they're just unrelated. Now, I found a really good resource Shea, 2013, Shea says, The study of superiority of the whole and part methods of learning has been one of constant controversy. The initial experimental study was published in 1900. Since that time, there have been over 30 experiments conducted on this problem, but the results have failed to reach general agreement. End quote. 
So this continues to, do be, to be a debate in our field and in other fields as well. It's not conclusive. I don't know why Dr. Aloff would simply say that it is. So let's review and critique Dr. Loft's resources and references and his concerns. Now, regarding Dr. Loft's questions in A, he has two questions. The first question is, does training on a smaller portion of the articulatory gesture transfer over to the whole gesture? My answer is a qualified yes, but there are variables. It depends on how the whole W-H-O-L-E, is parsed, then assembled. It also depends on the child and his or her capabilities and compliance. So he cited five resources. Resource that we're going to do first is by Climb and Jones, 2008. Principles of Experience-Dependent Neural Plasticity. Implications for Rehabilitation After Brain Damage. Okay, Dr. Loft cites this article as a reference in the above bulleted item B. Briefly, B states, tasks that comprise highly organized or integrated movements, such as speaking, will not be enhanced by learning the constituent parts of the movement alone. Training on just the parts of these well-organized behaviors can actually diminish learning. Although the content is excellent in this article... I could find neither a quote referencing his specific content in B or anything specific in the article that relates to it. Although this journal article does not directly mention part-whole training, it does pertain to the plasticity of the brain as to how it learns and relearns in rehabilitation. So to give Dr. Loft the benefit of the doubt, perhaps he was referencing part-whole training indirectly somewhere in the article. Now, the remainder of this article primarily emphasizes, quotes, the damaged brain. That's their term. It reviews 10 principles of experience-dependent neural plasticity and considerations for applying them to individuals to optimize rehabilitation. All are really good points. For example, use it and improve it. Repetition, intensity, time, etc. Here's another resource that he cited, Whiteman and Linturn, 1985, Part Task Training of Tracking for Manual Control. Okay, I'm unsure as to why this article was included in his argument. It's primarily pro-part-to-whole instruction. The authors define part-task training as, quotes, practice on some set of components of a whole task as a prelude to practice of or performance of the whole task, end quote. Here's another one. Part task procedures are intended to improve learning efficiency. And another, part task training appears to be more effective with difficult tasks. Well, (laughs) speech is a difficult task. They cover information and research pros and cons about segmentation, fractionation, and simplification. And in full disclosure, this article was researched and written for the Naval Training Equipment Center to determine the best method for in-flight training programs. Hmm. Good article, however. Now, additional part task points for instruction and learning. And this is also by Whiteman and Linterm, 1985. Then also a, a source that I have by Rose, 1997. Here are four points. Learning capabilities. Quotes. Part task training also appears to be more effective for low aptitude intellect or inexperienced students. And end quotes. That's most of my speech kids. Integrating parts back into the whole. Quotes, partition the task, then reintegrate the parts during learning. End quotes. Here's another one. A fundamental assumption. Quotes, that components of a task can be identified and the improved skills on the components will help performance of the whole task. End quotes. Critical principle. Quotes, it is important that learners understand how the part or parts they are currently practicing are related to the whole skill, end quotes. Speech sound production and generalization is always the primary focus of oral sensory motor therapy and other therapies. 
And it's important that we inform the client of that, which I think we all do that anyhow. Here's another uh, resource that he uses in his argument, and it's by Karen Forrest, 2002. Are oral motor exercises useful in the treatment of phonological slash articulatory disorders? Although Dr. Forrest questions oral motor exercises, she quotes McGill. Quotes, the most obvious reason for using oral motor exercises is that speech is an extremely complex motor behavior and principles of motor learning suggest that learning is facilitated when a complex behavior is decomposed into smaller units. And that's from McGill's 1998 edition of his book, Motor Learning. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit here, and I'd like to give you my informal analysis and maybe a few suggestions. To begin, dogmatic beliefs of either pure phonological speech training, which is emphasis on whole sound and word training using the auditory sensation and cognitive piece, and then phonetic speech training, emphasis on part-to-whole oral sensory motor methods, i.e. intrinsic sensations and movements during the speech act, sometimes gets us in trouble. No doubt when one believes speech primarily embodies the acoustic result within the framework of a language system, it's difficult to understand parsing or compartmentalizing the auditory result into recognizable and relatable components. Okay? So, and yes, I'm well aware that the dogma relates on both sides, okay? (laughs) Now, in our field, traditionally, we are told that speech has several subsystems. Respiratory, phonation, resonance, prosody, articulation. And as a therapist who needs specifics, those categories are too broad. Sometimes the subsystems are parsed into subsystems, Traditionally, speech articulation is described as the process of forming sounds and words with oral parts, the lips, tongue, jaw, teeth, palate, and velum. And oral parts are good. But as a therapist, what am I supposed to do with them? Also within our field of speech-language pathology, we have devised categories to identify and describe speech production, such as place, matter, voice. That describes speech sound productions. Uh, We also talk about distinctive features, which is a binary system of phonetic contrasts of speech sound productions. I I was trained in distinctive features, and I still don't know what grave is, okay? Also, phonological processes. That describes patterns and errors that typically developing children use when developing speech. It doesn't describe correct speech sound productions, which is what I need when I'm doing therapy. Now, as an experienced speech-language pathologist on the side of phonetics, okay, I've parsed many a speech sound and reconstructed it into successful speech production. So, following is another alternative, one that I've used and one that is easily viewed and analyzed on the client, and worked with in therapy. Now, all of this information is in the literature and has has been for many years. I'm going to detail all of this information much more and cite resources in um, the last podcast, okay, which is the new wave, okay? But for now, appropriately parsing and training oral stabilization and mobilization of speech sound production components, then combining them over time is an excellent method to generate the whole speech gesture that will potentially transfer and hopefully transfer into connected speech. Of course, the speech sound is always the specified target goal during therapy. So let's look at this a little bit closer. Speech sound productions are comprised of points of stabilization and mobilization. Fletcher, 1992. Also, Lee et al., 2015. These bottom-line oral elements can be identified, shaped, layered, and combined into speech sounds. 
This approach can be especially helpful for a child who's unable to correctly perceive the speech sound, either auditorily or interorally or both, or physiologically produce it. Now, the component tasks are not treated as traditional sound stimulation, i.e. ask the child to do an oral movement, repeat it, and expect a correct production of the speech sound to emerge. That's important. Component tasks are actual stabilization and mobilization elements of the speech sound. Then they are combined and practiced appropriately at his or her capability level over time as a process. The movements transition and layer into a correctly stabilized and mobilized speech sound production. Now, correct, quotes, correct, means not an acoustic approximation of the ideal acoustic result, i.e. something that sounds close or better. Correct is when stabilization and mobilization are in place for the speech sound. In addition to individual speech sounds, Lingual stabilization is critically important during connected speech. Gick and Allen in 2013 discovered that, quotes, the tongue is almost constantly braced against lateral surfaces, in other words, the top side teeth and the perimeter of the palate, during running speech, end quotes. A speech sound production that is parsed and correctly stabilized and mobilized will ideally carry over and transition into connected speech production with less time and less effort. Okay, that's the goal. Part to whole training and layering the components is a win-win for everyone. Let's move on to Dr. Loft's second reason to question using ensembles. And that is strengthening the articulatory structures. Now, in this topic, Dr. Loff overtly expresses concern about the need for lingual strength during speaking. Covertly, however, he implies an assumption that SLPs that do ensembles and his interpretation is cheek puffing and tongue curling and tongue presses and other random oral movements that SLPs that do ensembles do them unnecessarily to try and strengthen the tongue in children with speech delays. Now, thinking therapeutically, almost every SLP who's done therapy has worked with a child with an idiopathic speech disorder who has a flaccid tongue that moved horizontally, you know, i.e. anteriorly, posteriorly during speech production, out and in, rather than vertically. And almost every SLP has wondered... Is there something I need to do with the tongue muscles? If so, what do I do? Speech sounds require front tongue and back tongue vertical movements, and some tongues do not automatically comply. On the other hand, in the literature, it is well documented and quite acceptable to do lingual strength tasks with Individuals with diagnosed oral motor impairments, such as a person with acquired dysarthria or or dysphagia, There is an assumption that if there is no diagnosed neuromuscular issue, that strength tasks in therapy are moot. The strength issue has been studied through the decades. There are, however, two other terms that need to be brought into the discussion, tone and endurance, in addition to strength. We'll briefly address them, too. In A, on the first page, okay, Dr. Loff poses four questions, then proceeds to answer them in his subsequent points, B through K, okay? There's a lot of information on that first page. He's got 11 points. In the following, I'll specifically address his four questions posed in A, as well as his comments in B through K. So here is his first question. Is strength necessary for speaking? If so, how much? Here's my response. No, not in the way we normally think of strength or tension or force. In fact, I agree wholeheartedly with Dr. Loff and other researchers that neither lingual nor labial excessive strength is needed to employ forceful speech production. During speaking, as he indicated in B, C, and D, The tongue exerts a small proportion of total pressure that the tongue can exert. 
That's Neil and Palmer, 2012. It is estimated that oral structures require no more than 20% of their maximal force-generating capabilities to produce speech. And that makes sense. The reference, I believe, is to the lingual and labial tactile interactions during speech production and the amount of, quotes, force exerted during those linguodental alveolar palatal velar contacts. Tongue movements during connected speech require dexterity and agility necessary to produce refined and precise tactile and spatial interactions. Speaking is not a forceful activity that requires extreme lingual strength. Connected conversational speaking, however, does require lingual endurance. And that's from Solomon, 2004. Here's his second question. Are the articulators actually strengthened by using ensom? And here's my response. This is a ridiculously loaded question. <laughs> so just what are ensoms? And has anyone ever claimed to strengthen the tongue with indiscriminate random tasks? In Dr. Loft's 2008 survey article, he implies that ensoms involve haphazard off-the-wall tasks, and these are my terms, such as blowing, tongue push-ups, pucker smile, cheek puffing, etc. In the 2008 Forrest and Iuzini's Siegel's comparison study, their interpretation of non-speech oral motor therapy tasks involved moving around the room while doing face padding for two to three minutes, then stroking the center of the tongue with a tongue depressor, applying a resistance against the tongue, and lifting the tongue tip to the alveolar ridge. All of those. That's terrific. Of course, if the non-oral tasks they used or any tasks like them are used, the answer to this question is a resounding no. Changing or at the very least impacting lingual musculature is similar to exercise regimens needed to tone thighs and other body parts. Though it does contain some unusual characteristics, the tongue is comprised of skeletal muscle, just like all the other muscles we can see in our body. There are reliable studies that indicate that lingual muscles can be strengthened, similar to other skeletal muscles on our body. But as I learned from Dr. Hall, a professor in the physiology department at Loma Linda University, and from Dr. Heather Clark, and others in research articles and books, as well as my own therapy applications, there must be therapeutic parameters met to do so. Briefly, they are 1. Maximum and multiple isometric contractions against an immovable force, such as the hard palate. When the IOP device is not available, the IOPI device, we'll be talking about that. 2. A specific number of reps and sets slightly above their capability level that increases over time, and three, tasks that are done with consistent repetition over time. The length of treatment time varies between six to eight weeks, typically, if you have good compliance. In addition, Clark, 2008, specifically recommends allowing adequate time between exercise sessions to allow for muscle recovery. Okay, the third question that Dr. Loff asks is, how do SLPs objectively document weakness of articulators and objectively document supposed increases in strength after ensoms? Well, the answer is, we don't. A portable, affordable, personalizable IOP, the Iowa Oral per Performance Instrument device, would be really helpful. Several years ago, I borrowed one and loved it. And if you have the handout, it's on page five there, okay? The IOP, you can see it. An excellent systematic review was done to examine the evidence for the use of the IOP in 2013, and that was Adams et al. It was really good. And since 1991, they found 38 strength studies and 15 endurance studies. It was very interesting reading. Also, an excellent 2017 article by Moon, M-O-O-N et al. on the IOP, it was actually done in Korea, resulted in significant improvement in lingual strength and articulation in stroke patients with dysarthria. Dr. Loft's question number four. 
Do children with speech sound disorders have weak articulators? Here's my response. The accurate answer, as stated in Potter, Nevergelt, and Van Damme May 2019 article is, one, the majority of tongue strength studies have focused on adults. And two, over the past 75 years, the studies have reported contradictory findings. Please refer to Potter's article for numerous resources. Potter's recent study, 2019, the one that I just referred to, postulates some interesting results, however. Three of them here. They compared tongue strength using the IOP with a total of 286 individuals ages 3 to 17 years of age. 228 of them were typical developing, 16 were speech sound delayed or disordered, and 42 had identifiable motor speech disorders. Quotes, for all groups, tongue strength increased rapidly from three to six and a half years of age, then continued to increase with age at a slower rate until 17 years of age. Their third point Children with speech delays did not differ from typical developing peers. However, children with motor disorders demonstrated decreased tongue strength compared with the typical and speech-delayed children. Okay, let's shift again, and this is more of my specific critique. Do keep in mind, the tongue is a muscular hydrostat and is capable of localized extension and contraction, and that is Kent, 2004. In addition, muscular hydrostats, like the human tongue, such as tentacles and elephant's trunks, are structures that are composed entirely of soft tissue. Muscles, fat, connective tissue, there's no bones, no joints. They're capable of rich combinations of shapes and motions. And that's Stone and Murano, 2007. Most tongue and speech discussions go back to the basics, or at least we should be. All speech is comprised of, you know by now, stabilization and mobilization components. And throughout the perfect oral motor storm documents that we've been talking about, and if you have them, you've been reading, I've emphasized external stabilization to anchor the tongue during use. You know, lateral margin dental bracing, lateral lingual dental bracing, Gickin Allen, Gickatel, 2017. However, one of the most specific Muscular hydrostat maneuvers that the tongue must be capable of achieving is internal lingual stabilization or mid-tongue contraction. This is critically important to generate agile, precise lingual movements. Here's the essential piece. The front tongue only elevates lips and curls when the mid-tongue contracts. That's from Smith & Keir, 1989. Front tongue vertical movement is absolutely necessary for correct production of t, d, n, s, z, sh, j, 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 ul, and the retroflex er. The front tongue cannot move vertically to successfully interact with the alveolar ridge unless the mid tongue contracts. For speech, the tongue must be capable of not only generating mid-tongue contraction, but be capable of adjusting the graded levels of contraction commensurate to the amount of vertical movement needed. For example, t, the T, requires very little mid-tongue contraction for the front tongue to elevate and interact with the alveolar ridge, but a retroflex er requires much more contraction to curl back and form its oral resonance space. Now, this is something I can address in therapy. We frequently read of lingual strength, but rarely of lingual tonicity or lingual endurance. I want to talk about these just briefly. Definitions are abundant, but their overlapping associations with speech production aren't. I studied this conundrum for two years with Dr. Hall, a physiology professor, and I still have questions. Strength? Your maximum contraction that can be held for a short length of time can be measured. Tone is a visual thing. It refers to the state of normal tension that enables you to posture and move at a moment's notice. It cannot be measured. Endurance is the ability to keep the muscle neurons firing. Endurance can be measured. Of the three, 
oral movement endurance seems to be most closely related to connected speech production, but we need proof. Research in this area is sparse. We need more research, please. Moving right along to the third reason that uh, Dr. Loft suggests that we question using ensoms, and that is relevancy of ensoms to speech. Here's my response. On the first page, he poses six concerns, and I believe that he's referring to the concept of relevancy in these six concerns in three different ways. One, task specificity. Quotes, relevancy is the only way to get changes in the neural system. The context of a specific task in which a skill is learned is crucial. That was in A. He relates relevancy to the purpose of a motor behavior has a profound influence on the manner in which the relevant neural topography is marshaled and controlled. That's in C. The relevancy concern actually is the topic of reason number four. Okay, and I respond to this highly controversial neurological issue in reason number four. The second way that he interprets relevancy is disintegration of speaking. He says, most ensembles disintegrate the highly integrated task of speaking, CD, by practicing tongue elevation, etc. This is somewhat related to the part whole transfer issue, as we discussed in reason number one. However, Dr. Loft states in his item C, quotes, for sensory motor stimulation to improve articulation, the stimulation must be done with relevant behaviors with a defined end goal using integration of skills. Hmm. End quote. I would interpret that to mean that the disintegration, then integration of skills is appropriate as long as the parts are relevant to speech. And uh, as we discovered in reason number one, Dr. Loff is opposed, or at least I thought he was, to part-whole training. Hmm. And the third interpretation of relevancy addresses the importance of doing therapy tasks that are relevant to speech and in context, and see his items C, D, E, and F. It is a misconception that speech sounds cannot be parsed into meaningful, relevant components then integrated successfully into speech sounds. We've discussed this. And therapists, many of us, do it every day. To be sure, the approach of parsing, then combining relevant tasks in context is applied successfully in other motor activities as well. I recently gave a seminar on oral motor components and mentioned Dr. Loft's basketball example. And a gentleman in my audience, and he was a big muscular athlete kind of guy, immediately spoke up and said, when I teach someone to throw a basketball, I deconstruct the movements. They practice and learn the movements, then we put them together. That works the best. I thought that was interesting and revealing. Dr. Loft said that you shouldn't do that. Golf is another great example. Quotes, golf is a precision game that requires a perfect balance between mobility and stability. And that's in Dungana and Djokovic, 2013. I'm probably slaughtering their names. I'm sorry. An important foundational piece to task relevancy and speech context is one's definition and description of the word speech. Underlying the application of ensoms to clinical practice and research are basic questions such as, what is an ensom and what is speech? Non-speech tasks are often explicitly and implicitly defined as tasks that do not involve speech. Non-speech is therefore defined by exclusion, and speech is rarely defined at all, and that's Kent, 2015. So, my question to you is, how do you define speech? Here's Chang, 2007. Speech production is a remarkable and unique motor accomplishment. We can all agree on that one. However, there is no single agreed-upon authentic definition of speech that's bubbled to the surface and stayed there. Here are a few recent offerings. Kent, 2015, provides a succinct definition. Movements or movement plans that produce as their end result acoustic patterns that accord with the phonetic structure of a language. Hmm. Moss, 2014, bottom lines his definition. Speech production is a complex motor skill 
that requires coordination across many different muscle groups with extraordinary spatial temporal demands. End quote. Van Lieshout, 2017, defines a motor definition. Speech is a complex oral motor function that involves multiple articulators that need to be coordinated in space and time at relatively high movement speeds. Then you have Ziegler and Ackerman, 2013, view the motor events in speech as a specific branch of linguistics, i.e. the sound systems of language, end quotes. Their focus is on the acoustic result or sound of the sound. Currently in our field, the trend is to refer to speech errors as speech sound errors rather than movement-based misarticulations. And then Vandermerve 2009 says that speech is the externalized expression of language as a motor skill speech is goal-directed and afferent-guided. In parentheses here, afferent neurons are sensory neurons that carry nerve impulses from sensory stimuli toward the central nervous system and brain. Most definitions of speech include the motor aspect to one degree or another, including motor complexities and coordination, spatiotemporal demands that are goal-directed that generates an acoustic result. Vandermeer is the only one that even hints at the intraoral sensory piece. She's also a therapist in South Africa. Okay, and all of the definitions are accurate, but they give me nothing as a therapist to focus on and work with. It brings us back to the observable, the tangible speech components of stabilization, external and internal, and mobilization. Gick and Allen, 2013, Karen Smith, 1985, Lee et al., 2015. Stabilization and mobilization are embedded in the framework of every speech sound. That's Fletcher in 1992. Dr. Loff asserts that the most effective way to teach speech is to do repetitive drill of a whole speech sound or word. A few children do well with this approach. Many others don't. Many need oral assistance or therapy to generate the stabilization and mobilization for their speech sound productions. Dr. Loff expresses concern in his D and F about training tongue elevation and isolation, i.e. the practice of raising the tongue up to the alveolar ridge or even up to the nose in an effort to improve an S production. Gibbon states in 1999 that tongue tip slash blade movement does not occur independently of tongue body movement. One characteristic of mature lingual control is that the tongue tip blade and the tongue body do not always move together but demonstrate the ability to move relatively independent of each other. End quote. I believe what she is alluding to is the contraction of the mid tongue that elevates the front tongue. For children who are either physically incapable of generating mid tongue contraction or just don't know how, Practicing this vertical lingual maneuver can be very helpful. When a child's tongue primarily moves horizontally and you want to encourage vertical front tongue movement, sometimes at first, it's easiest for them to produce larger vertical movements. For example, tongue to nose or tongue to alveolar ridge with a lowered jaw. So sometimes it's preferable to begin with larger movements than work toward refining them. The goal is to refine his or her front tongue vertical lingual movements via mid-tongue contraction and side tongue stabilization. That's what gives you the small movements, the combined external and internal lingual stabilization. Refined, stabilized vertical tongue tip blade movements are necessary. So the t-t-t-n, and all the rest and the L's will be produced correctly, not just in isolation, but during co-articulated, connected speech as well. Dr. Loft's fourth reason to not use ensoms is task specificity. Now, that term can be very misleading. The meaning of the term task specificity, or sometimes in the literature it's called task independent, can be misleading. It refers or relates to the neurological underpinnings of tasks. It's the neurological piece, in our case, the speech task, as well as non-speech tasks. 
Dr. Loff in A2F emphasizes that the function of speaking and non-speech tasks are neurologically activated in different parts of the brain, and this is referred to as task specificity. What Dr. Loff does not tell us is that task specificity has been a contentious area of debate for many years among researchers in several fields, including speech-language pathology. Now, there's a ton of brain information available. Thing is, much of it is inconclusive. In fact, the topic of motor control has been debated in the literature for at least a century. Let's narrow it down and look at some of the information that's been presented over the past 20 plus years. In the past couple decades, the issue of speech motor control, specifically in reference to apraxia of speech, was raised by a review article by Ballard, Grenier, and Robin, 2000, 27 pages. Basically, they described AOS as a general motor disorder which involves both speech and non-speech movements that operates as a universal or integrative sensory motor system. Then Ziegler, 2003, 33 pages, responded with an opposing view saying that the speech motor control is task-specific as evidenced from dysarthria and apraxia. And in 2003, Ballard et al. responded to Ziegler. The debate, as evidenced by a variety of authors, has continued to this day. Now, regarding the general or integrative speech-motor control model, the following information is cited from Ballard, Robin, and Fulkin in 2003. Neurological and evolutionary evidence strongly suggests that neural networks are flexible, multifaceted, multifunctional, and overlapping in function. Studies are reviewed that clearly support the inclusion of non-speech motor tasks in assessment of the disordered speech motor control system. Their conclusion? This response cautions against the seemingly premature acceptance of a model assuming separate sensory motor systems for volitional non-speech motor activities of speech. Then the other side, regarding the task-independent, task-specific model for speech control, the following is cited from Ziegler, 2003. He supports a task-dependent model that postulates different sensory motor control systems for vegetative functions, emotional expression, and speech. The motor subsystems in the task-dependent model are considered separate and involve distinct separate sensory motor patterns and specialized neural circuitries. His conclusion. It is claimed that both the dysarthrias and apraxia of speech should be considered disorders of a sensory motor specialized system for speaking. Impairment of speech and non-speech movements should be kept separate. Now, each side, okay, has valid points to substantiate their views, and each offers numerous supportive research articles. Dr. Loff sides with the Ziegler task-specific camp. Now, I have read a bit on this topic, and the integrative model proposed by Ballard et al. makes sense to me. I found a really good article, 2016, by Samoyan, a neurologist, and he affirms, quotes, A spoken word requires the orchestration of multiple neural networks associated with various speech-related processes, including sound perception, semantic processing, memory encoding, preparation, and execution of vocal motor commands. Sounds inclusive to me. Also in Moss's MAAS 2017 Insightful Review on Speech and Non-Speech, What Are We Talking About?, he states that the emerging conclusion is that a task-dependent model is called into question, as its two central claims are founded on ill-defined and inconsistently applied concepts. End quote. A few of my observations. Uh, at some point over the past 20 years, the debate jumped from brain-damaged adults to speech-sound kids. So does all of this relate to the young developing child who's never experienced good speech? 
Also, I noticed that most articles are void of the sensory piece. Sensory application in therapy is imperative to generate the sensory motor loop, i.e., you touch the child, the child feels it, the child moves, and as he or she moves, they sense the movement that stimulates additional movement. A lively, sensory-rich, highly interactive therapy experience can hardly be compared to a controlled research lab. Also, it's interesting to note that several of these articles by Ziegler, 2003, Weismer, 2006, Bunton, 2008, are among the early initiators of the oral motor debate. Well, the jury is out, I guess, would be the phrase to use for this. And as a therapist, it's difficult to know how to interpret and apply it all. There are missing pieces. But Moss's point makes sense to me. He says, I'm more concerned about behavioral learning. I have no control over the brain. And as Gillum and Gillum suggest in their 2014 article, the relationship between theory and practice is not always clear cut. And the fifth reason is warm-up slash awareness slash metamouth by Dr. Gregory Loff. And he cites five concerns about using warm-ups and awareness and metamouth. And this information is gleaned from five of his sources. Now, let me quickly just share with you what his sources were or are. Uh, Kamhi, 2005. It's a language and reading article. Klein et al., 1991. Children's Knowledge of Auditory Articulator Correspondences, Phonologic and Metaphonologic. Kogel et al., 1986. On Self-Monitoring Procedures. Uh, then there was a 1998 article by Pollock et al. on sports medicine, and then a 1989 article by Safran et al. on warm-up and muscular injury prevention. So again, sports medicine. Uh, <laughs> my immediate response to Dr. Loft's sensory interpretations um, is that they are creative, inaccurate guesses. Most therapists know why they apply sensory input and the value of it. Then it's not to, quotes, warm up the muscle fibers before a hearty round of oral movement. And awareness goes far beyond a child knowing and explaining how speech sound is made. Instead, it's about the use of oral tactile sensations and proprioceptive feedback. And he has no articles on that at all. The term most often used when referring to intraoral sensations is somatosensory feedback. The meaning of the term involves touch, i.e. something that comes in contact with the skin, while other sensory receptors are localized in compact little sense organs, you know, the ears for hearing and the eyes for seeing and the nose for smelling. And the sense organ receptors for touch and its kindred sensations are distributed all over the skin, like how we sense temperature and texture and vibration and pressure and pain and taste inside of the mouth and movement and position awareness. So many researchers acknowledge and emphasize the essential role oral sensation plays in speech production of which Dr. Loft does not acknowledge. Now, specific to the oral mechanism, Haggard and DeBauer, 2014, explain that, quotes, oral somatosensory awareness refers to the somatic sensations arising within the mouth and to the information these sensations provide about the state and structure of the mouth itself and the objects in the mouth, like food. Oral tissues have a strong somatosensory innervation. Somatosensory awareness is the basis of mouth feel and the conscious mouth image, end quote. Speech production is dependent on both somatosensory and auditory feedback. Somatosensory information is central to achieving the precision requirement of speech movements. That's Nasir and Ostry, 2006. You know, at first I thought Dr. Loff was joking about, quotes, warm-ups. Then I realized that his, in, his semantic interpretation of warm-ups for oral sensory motor exercise, quotes, was vastly different from mine as a therapist. 
In fact, he struggled to determine why anyone would do warm-ups, awareness, and metamouth tasks, which I interpret as oral sensory therapy. His first statement in A indicates that oral warm-ups are done to increase blood circulation. Now, this relates to whole body musculature pre-exercise, not oral exercise. In his comment in B, warm-ups are done prior to doing an exercise regime that will maximally tax the system. Again, he's relating warm-ups to physical whole body exercise. Then in C, he admits he's unsure as to the rationale. Quotes, if clinicians are not using the term warm-up to identify a physiological task to, quotes, wake up the mouth, then perhaps they believe that they are providing some form of metamouth knowledge about the articulator's movement and placement, end quote. Then in D, he makes a most surprising, and I'm going to say senseless statement, quotes, awareness and its role in therapy is always questioned, end quotes. To a therapist working with a client, awareness is paramount to facilitating change. Dr. Loff goes on to say that, Children have very little consciousness of how speech sounds are made. Meta is when something refers back to itself. Now, this interpretation, his interpretation, is closer. We want the child to focus on his or her mouth, but I do not expect a child or even an untrained adult to know and explain how speech sounds are made. That's my job to know, to share, and to use to the child's benefit. Let's look more closely at the oral somatosensory system. In much of the speech pathology literature, speech sensation refers to only auditory sensation. As a field in general, it appears that since the 1970s, we have not viewed intraoral tactile sensation and proprioception as viable research topics. Perhaps the adaptation of phonology, which is more auditory and cognition, was and is an influence. There are, however, researchers, a few in our field, but several in other disciplines such as neurophysiology and in several other countries like Sweden and the Netherlands that are investigating the oral somatosensory system. Without question, they acknowledge the presence and importance of the intraoral somatosensory system. Following are a few quotes from some of the primary resources. This is from Tied and Austri, 2009. Somatosensory signals from the facial skin inside the mouth and muscles of the vocal tract provide a rich source of sensory input in speech production. The somatosystem is involved in the perception of speech. Here's another one. Quotes. One of the specific characteristics of oral somatosensory function is self-touch that happens almost continuously. That's Haggard and DeBauer, 2014. Here's my phrase. The mouth is the only body part that interacts with itself meaningfully. And it does so via two sensory forms, tactile and proprioception. We can use those in therapy. Here's another quote. Same article, Haggard and DeBauer. The mouth is one of the most densely innervated parts of the body. Its sensory richness is linked to the key role of oral sensory motor control in eating, drinking, and speaking. The mouth contains a range of tissue types, skin, muscle, teeth, that are in close proximity and in close, constant interaction. Another one here from Tremblay et al. in 2003. They state that somatosensory information on its own is fundamental to the achievement of speech movements. And last but not least... By Liang and Chioko, 2004, it is well known that position sense, which is proprioception, is important for any organ operating in a spatial context in which the tongue does move through space in the mouth. In fact, the production of all fricatives is spatial. The tongue for s, z, sh, z, and th, the th's, and the lower lip for f and v, come in close proximity with either the alveolar ridge, hard palate, or anterior teeth. The placement is then sustained and forceful airflow is initiated. Among other things, like appropriate stabilization, 
good intraoral proprioception is required. The application or reference of oral sensory therapy is rarely studied and presented in journals. However, here are two articles that I'd like to share with you that reference oral sensation and apraxia. The first one, Turband and Mason, 2010, and that's M-A-A-S-S-E-N, that's done in the Netherlands, <laughs> proposed that oral sensitivity could be a core deficit in children with childhood apraxia of speech. The second one is an interesting therapy article by Lundborg and McAllister, 2007. And that one's done in Sweden. They treated a child with severe developmental dyspraxia, their term, with intraoral sensory stimulation and electropalatography, EPG. Now, the little girl began her 11-month therapy regime when she was five years of age. She was described as severely unintelligible. Quotes, she used long sentences but had a very restricted sound repertoire. Her articulation pattern was deviant with groping behaviors. It was almost impossible for her to imitate speech sounds and had some problems with simple non-speech movements. End quote. In essence, Therapy comprised general vibratory oral stimulation and articulatory training using EPG as a visual guide. When the study was completed, they noted that her speech improved significantly, but, quotes, it was far from age appropriate, end quotes. She, however, was easy to understand even when speaking spontaneously. Let's talk a little bit about the application of sensory therapy and the clients who receive it. Sensation, in general, is how we humans receive information. Regardless of the therapeutic methodology that you aspire to, all speech therapy involves some form of sensation. It just has to. The therapist provides sensory input, like auditory input, or visual input, or both, or tactile input, etc. Then the client receives the sensory input, the auditory, visual, or tactile, and hopefully that stimulus generates oral movement output. And hopefully (laughs) it's correct. A typical speech therapy session involves a series of sensory motor volleys, no matter the type or form of sensory input used. Traditional forms of sensory input, or what I call sensory assists, are auditory and visual. The child sees his mouth in a mirror. That's the visual piece, obviously. The child is asked to imitate target sounds and words via auditory input. The child is asked to watch the therapist and or the mirror and listen to modeled stimuli. Both sensations are applied typically simultaneously. Oral sensory motor therapy, however, utilizes the auditory and the visual senses, but also includes the options of additional forms of sensory input, such as tactile, which includes a whole range of input alternatives, extraorally and intraorally, as well as proprioception, intraoral proprioception. Usually I have the child close his or her eyes and focus on their tongue or whatever we're working on. Also, thermal stimulation, intraoral, and taste sensation. Now, the auditory piece is not negated. Auditory feedback during speaking is important. In fact, it's critical. But it only happens after something is said. Intraoral sensory receptors provide an immediate window to the oral mechanism, which is the source of speech. The added sensations in therapy are especially helpful with children who aren't aware they even have a mouth, much less how to use it. Sensory assists are also beneficial for speech sound kids to localize specific mouth parts. For example, using tactile assists to localize the tongue sides and the teeth for lateral tongue bracing for our front tongue sounds, etc., is sometimes the only way a child can focus and feel that important stabilizing position. Regarding intraoral sensory research, as stated over 50 years ago by Bosma in 1967, he says, accurate measurement of sensory perception in the oral area by simple, reliable techniques has been a persistent problem to investigators. 
end quotes. Well, no doubt the research ball was dropped for a while, and understandably so. It is difficult. However, in my investigation of this topic, a few dedicated, gutsy, tech-oriented researchers are picking up the challenge. And I just want to say, we therapists certainly appreciate what you're doing. Please continue. This concludes my analysis and critique regarding Dr. Loft's five theoretical reasons to question using ensembles. I hope it's provided an accurate view, not only of his concerns, but other and additional very credible evidence-based views as well. If nothing else, I hope it makes you think and perhaps jump in and do some investigation yourself. Hey, busy SLP, Char Beauchart here. Here's a tip from me to you. Every week, become a lot more informed. Sign up for Therapy Matters at charbochart.com. It's free. Learn our tech and language tips and techniques and tons of ideas for making your school therapy life easier and more effective. I've been a therapist for 30 plus years and I love to share what I've learned. Sign up for Therapy Matters, read it or listen to it at charbochart.com. You'll be glad you did because the therapy that you do matters. Sign up now. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.